0: Welcome to the Little Red Podcast, which brings you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. I'm Graham Smith from the Department of Pacific Affairs at the Australian National University, and I'm joined by my co-host, Louisa Lin, former China correspondent for the BBC and NPR, now with the Centre for Advancing Journalism at Melbourne University. We're on air thanks to support from the Australian Centre for China in the World. We're joined today by the Lowy Institute's Peter Tsai and Dirk van der Klain from the Australian National University.
1: this month, we're looking at the One Belt, One Road initiative. It's been called the Project of the Century. A road across the sea and a belt across the land across more than 70 countries over Asia, Africa, Europe and the Pacific. Interestingly, Australia is not among them and nor is India, Japan, the United States or the United Kingdom. Many of the signatories are smaller countries so to start with what is one belt one road
2: once upon a time several routes led from china through central asia to europe it was called silk road people would put things on camels
3: and cross the desert to trade with other people
2: like countries sharing
3: yeah and then later ships traveled from china through
1: southeast asia to africa and they'd bring things back to china like
2: giraffes. Is that how the Beijing Zoo got giraffes? No, that was a long time ago. What's that have to do with the forum? Well, a few years ago, China's president Xi Jinping proposed making new routes like the old routes, but even bigger. It's called the Belt and
1: Road Initiative.
2: saying
0: that goes if you want to get rich you need to build roads but it's the 21st century so in addition to roads we need telecommunications networks we need electricity we need water the belt and road or to give it its full name the silk road economic belt and the 21st century maritime silk road are the biggest infrastructure and trade projects of their kind in living memory don't forget the internet <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> okay. I fine. lost the words, what can I say? That's the Chinese explanation, borrowed from the endless supply of abysmal propaganda that it spawned from bedtime stories to children's songs to rap music. But how's it being seen in the West? Is it a modern-era Marshall Plan? A geopolitical strategy for a new power block? A bumper sticker for what's already going on? A new model for Chinese colonialism? Or all of the above?
1: Um. Are the wheels beginning to fall off this grand scheme with rising concern about debt levels? And some countries, like Malaysia, apparently having second thoughts. Peter, let's start with you. You have an economic take on One Belt, One Road, that China is basically using it to sort of distribute and export its manufacturing chains and its excess capacity. I mean, can you paint a picture of how that's happening on the ground, maybe using an example
2: Yes, I think um, <clears throat> this is a Belt and Road project. I just think it's something kind of a device, an easy explanation. It has um, many different components, and I my research primarily focuses on the economic aspect of this kind of strategy or initiative or however you want to call it. I think the, the, the first one, I think, is really around connectivity, and it's also really about how you see China as at a centre of economic activity and how you integrate all the neighbouring country into China's economic orbit and here we're now talking about physical connectivities, roads and the ports connected um, physically with China's trading routes And also, not just in terms of infrastructure, I think it's also the piece about as China is modernising its economy is gradually or has already, to a certain extent, graduated from the very low-wage intensive manufacturing. So in a way, China actually wants to move out some of its industries beyond its border. Then you integrate it with the infrastructure. So that's why it's kind of a help China to advance in a global production chain at the same time, physically integrating this country into China's economic orbit. The Chinese policy makers, they are struggling to deal with this issue really, since the time of a global uh, global financial crisis, really around the issue of access capacity, which I think in some of the newspaper article, they even suggest the very idea of Belt and Road really come from this, how do we deal with all this access capacity? Just to give you some example, China at the moment produced something like 800 million tonnes of steel. I mean, the access bit is the combined production, I think, of the United States and Europe just to give you a sense of the scale of the problem. And how do you deal with that issue is not an easy one. A small part of a solution is actually to move some of the production facilities outside of China to the countries where they believe in the process of industrialization they actually need this um, capacity. Another aspect of a belt and road is actually about shifting this access capacity out. Um, is actually written into some of the provincial kind of industrial strategy. Is actually quite evident in Hebei provincial strategy because um, they literally have to set a goal to reduce their iron ore, the iron and steel production. And part of their strategy is actually to move some of the factories and um, access capacity out of Hebei into other developing countries.
1: So, Dirk, your research has been about those countries that. Uh, rather unkindly we used to call the nasty (laughs) stans but um, (laughs) but in particular Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan I I think you've just been to see a Chinese-run textile park in southern Tajikistan did you get a sense from going around that what the priorities were for that particular project
3: yeah that's a good question so I've been I just give my background sort of in China and Central Asia probably for the past uh, two years maybe even a little bit longer and I can assure you they're not the nastiest ones they're quite fun they're quite nice I've been to many so-called Belt and Road projects in Central Asia and and this probably goes to to your introduction where you sort of asked uh, is it a geopolitical thing is it things that are already being done it is all of the above all the things that, that Graham mentioned before but when it comes to sort of Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan a lot of the big projects that are now labeled as Belt and Road they started in 2009 um, so the textile park is an exception, but the biggest project, for example, in Kyrgyzstan is a oil refinery, which is meant to take crude oil from Kazakhstan and Russia, import it into Kyrgyzstan, and then be refined to provide refined petroleum products. Uh, that was started in two thousand and nine, uh, discussions probably before then, and it's sort of now s- stuck up as one of the pillar projects of Belt and Road uh, in Kyrgyzstan. Uh, now that project, like I'd say many other projects in uh, Kyrgyzstan haven't actually been that successful because there's a lot of a lot to do with sort of the uh, local political environment there where it makes it very hard for any foreign investor including Chinese investors to be successful so the mining projects for example have had constant pro- uh, protests the refinery that I've just mentioned has really suffered because Kazakhstan and Russia have not been willing to export their crude oil to this particular project so it's currently sitting not idle but it's only operating maybe 15 20 25% of its total capacity it's run by a company called Shanxi Coal and Chemical. It's just, in Chinese, it's just like Shanmei. 15%? They, they must be... Yeah, it be... might be more. It might be 20 25% now. But,
0: but definitely not enough to be making
3: any money. They're not making any money. Uh, they took a $300 million loan from CDB and then another sort of $200 million in their own funds and government funds, CDB, China Development Bank. And I would be surprised if they would be able to pay that back in the short term. The interest rates are not open, so I can't tell... Uh, what their repayments would be, but I'd be incredibly surprised if they'd be able to do that. And it's a project that already happened before 2013 when it was announced that this particular company is really struggling in Shanxi, and Shanxi is trying to encourage its companies to go overseas because they can't uh, make any money in China at the moment, and this was sort of their attempt to do that. It hasn't really worked out. I think the company itself has admitted uh, that it didn't really do the due diligence that was necessary. Um, so to sort of wrap that up into one, I'd say there are lots of projects. Uh, many of them have started before 2013, and their success is certainly mixed. There are some successful projects there. But I think that a number of the companies that have done that would, would recognise that they didn't do their due diligence uh, for those particular projects. I mean, it's something I hadn't really thought about before, but Nico
0: Kuxiang is on the record as saying that uh, zombie companies should be kept alive where possible has the Belt and Road seen any zombie companies let
3: loose on the world? Uh, well, I think that depends how you define a, a zombie company. I, I think that you could you could probably call Shanmei a zombie company. It really depends how you define it, but they are, they're propped up by subsidies. I don't know if their balance sheet actually says they're losing money, but the only thing keeping them together is subsidies. Uh, the particular uh, textile project that you mentioned as well, which was originally a, a Xinjiang company, it's a subsidy of another big company. It's a whole corporate um, structure that once again is very opaque very hard to read but that particular Xinjiang company uh, they did a prospectus to try and raise money for this particular project and in in the prospectus though they are issuing bonds in the prospectus itself it said that this company is propped up by government subsidies um, so that would be another one where I think you could define that as a zombie company based on that and it's trying to go outside and find a market share i would probably use the word desperation in terms of that particular company trying to go out and find out, find another market, piece of market share.
1: But I'm a bit surprised that, I mean, One Belt, One Road was not even announced till 2013. So why these projects that predate that are all kind of swept up in its orbit? Is it just because that's kind of an easy way of getting funding or is it to try and make One Belt, One Road look bigger and more sort of overarching than it is? Or is there some other reason for it?
3: Yeah, so I think you've, you've pretty much hit the nail on the head there that firstly it is, a, it is an access funding thing, although these projects were largely funded before that. Um, but if you put Belt and Road on, of course, you can, you can attract more funding. And the second part is when you have an announcement, a politician comes and wants to announce a list of projects, just add anything you can. Anything that is already a project could potentially in the future 10 years be a project put it on there and make that number as big as possible in terms of we are doing x amount of investment and loans in this country generally bigger is better and I think that's true for politicians of all ilk wherever you are in the world and uh, uh, Chinese politicians aren't an exception on that
2: yes I I agree with Dirk's assessment maybe I will just add um, one or two two more things probably especially in the kind of a contemporary environment where China is actually tightening the overseas investment in terms of outflow over capital. You look at the two areas, you can be described as a permissible one is really around if you're um, going out there acquiring um, high-tech intellectual properties or really famous, um, I suppose, service brand and et cetera, you'll be supported, you'll be given access to credit. Another category is really around the Belt and Road projects. So given it is um, a such important uh, you can call a, a foreign policy or, or geopolitical or whatever project, but it is certainly uh, at the very top of the priority list for, the, for President Xi and for the, for the Chinese government. So if you're in a, a company and want uh, to invest abroad, and you would try, I think, your hardest uh, to, to try to brand your projects or package it, your project uh, as a Belt and Road project. And and for me that kind of brings us to the question
0: of what underpins the Belt and Road, and something that's not often mentioned is the twenty twenty five Made in China strategy, which some people have described as a, a kind of um, ethno nationalism. Does does this underpin the Belt and Road, and and if so,
2: how? Is it tied together? I just think um, with the Made in China twenty twenty five is actually is um, actually inspired by Germans um, so first um, because I'm a historian by training I'll probably give a bit of history if you look at a China's economic development it he, he comes to the stage where it's just really running out of uh, cheap labor cheap land cheap utilities and so it's losing his competitiveness I mean in terms of wages near the coastal area for China is actually more expensive than a lot of places in Southeast Asia, even Mexico. Um, at the beginning of the 20th century, it's like Chinese... Uh, workers wages were a fraction of what Mexicans were earning but now it's much more so you're really talking about so the China's um, uh, the economic model the the old economic model is really running out of a sting so to speak in terms of its competitiveness so the the Chinese government the policymakers are clearly very conscious of that so one way they are saying that we have to you know move up in the global production chain and how do we do that so that Chinese government actually identified a range of industry which they think are critically important for the economy and also in terms of... Uh, uh I suppose, the future international trend, so to speak. So they pour a lot of resource into these industries. And uh, they they want to turn their companies uh, into kind of leading national champions. And so in the future, China can actually become a powerhouse when it comes to um, exporting um, expensive, high-value-added, um, advanced manufactured goods. And that's just... Not just that, but also for a very long time, there's um, an obsession in China. It's, it's stretched back um, decades. It's really around this idea that um, Western country, industrial country, sets the international standards. It uh, doesn't matter whether it's um, be the it international law or be a technological standard or be the industrial standards. Uh, the Chinese are basically the, the rule-takers, not the rule-setters. Set- how does it fit together? It goes back to your question with the Belt and Road. I think it's quite a fascinating if you look at actually some of the details around the project and how the project is being presented in China and how the project is being sold. I think one of this languishing project and quite a symbolic project is actually the jakarta Bandung Railway project. From my understanding, it's not going high speed at all, um, uh, despite it's a high speed railway t- uh, project. So what it is, is um, for a long time the Chinese, you know, as we, you know, been to China, experience the kind of I suppose the marvel of the Chinese high-speed rail and etc. But so the Chinese companies, uh, especially engineering companies and a railway company, want to a- um, export the, their, their service abroad, um, but uh, when they want project, they have to build the projects according to other standards. For example, a Chinese company won a project in Turkey, so they have to build according to European-EU kind of a technological engineering standards. So they always want, um, as part of the Belt and Road, um, can we actually prevent, uh, convince other countries to actually accept a Chinese railway? so they tried to export that the kind of engineering and technical standard so when the chinese won the jakarta bandung project and the mandate to build it so if you read the the kind of editorials in the chinese newspaper it was hailed as a great great breakthrough because the the, the chinese consortium managed to persuade the indonesian government basically Um, to adopt all the Chinese engineering standard wholesale Chinese technologies from literally surveying, to the management, to uh, to the to the railway track, and to everything. So in that way, it was held as a breakthrough that uh, a, a very important Southeast Asian country actually decided to adopt the Chinese technological and engineering standard. This is just like a very project-specific standard, but if you actually read um, some of the policy documents, the Chinese policy banks, be it the China Development Bank, or some of the re- Insurance group, they're basically saying that if you're a Chinese company, you're going abroad, and if you can bid um, for a project, if your project can actually promote that particular country to adopt a Chinese standard, let's say the fiber optic network. And um, the the companies willing, or the the banks or the insurance company are willing to underwrite um, the loan for this particular project. So this all goes to that the Chinese companies can actually, in the future, set the engineering and the technical standards for the country in which they, they export to. This is the quiet and ambitious industrial policy goals for the Chinese government, and that is being kind of married with the Belt and Road project.
1: That is really interesting, because I guess it locks countries into Chinese standards from now on, right?
2: If you imagine, if you're the first mover, once you lay down the tracks, you train the engineers, um, all the signal systems and et cetera. So in the future, once you want to up, upgrade the projects, et cetera. Let me use an analogy. If you're like Apple, once you get used to its operating system and et cetera, it's, it's very hard kind of for you to switch to a different Android operating system. So kind of a, especially if you have an, a large capital projects and once you adopt in a particular set of a capital goods and it's just harder for you to switch. So it becomes this imbued inertia, so to speak. I mean, that's fascinating because a lot of the
0: Chinese companies I took to in the Pacific who are building various bits of infrastructure, one of their most common complaints is, why do we have to stick to Australian standards? We're not in Australia. We're in the Pacific. Why can't we just use our own standards? Um, So it's fascinating that they're being underwritten to promote Chinese standards because this is something the companies will definitely be in for
2: Actually, I heard in a very interesting case in Cambodia. They they actually said initially when the Chinese company actually won a contract to build an, a highway in Cambodia. I think it was actually initially built uh, according to European Union standard. But then the road kind of fell apart because just the, the weather conditions and et cetera. I don't know whether it was just a faulty construction or whether it was the European Union not really applicable in a particular in Cambodia. So they said in the end that they actually persuade the Cambodian government to change the particular road projects to building it according to... I think it was Yunnan or some other um, provincial kind of a standard because it's actually much more suited to the climate or the environment of Cambodia. So there's a lot of that going on uh, in the kind of a discussion, which I also kind of like you find quite fascinating.
1: And it seems that another characteristic of some of the Belt and Road projects is that we're getting these economic partnerships where resources are being given in exchange for infrastructure. And Dirk, I think you've written about TBEA being given a license to operate a gold mine in northern Tajikistan in exchange for building a power plant in Dushanbe. I mean, is that really about extending Chinese control over natural resources?
3: Probably the uh, TBEA example is a little bit of an outlier. Once again, it was a project that was started in 2009, the discussions uh, the amount of gold that they'll be able to get from that particular project is so small; it'd be point zero 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 one percent of like China's total gold use. I don't know how much it is, but it's it's absolutely tiny. So this is not a resource um, play for China per se. It was the only way that um, TBA TBEA, uh, which is a company from Xinjiang, was able to get uh, that project off the ground. So what they did initially. Uh, the Tajik government put this out to tender with all sorts of um, international institutions, uh, the ADB, uh, Asian Development Bank, World Bank, China Exim Bank as well, and no one wanted to fund it. And uh, as far as the Tajik government said, it was simply because this, the type of project only runs throughout winter. So it's a combined heating and electricity plant that runs during winter. You heat the coal, it heats the water to heat the houses, and at the same time, that steam is used as a turbine to produce electricity. Uh, so it's not a particularly efficient all-year-round project, and so they really struggled to get money for it. TBEA was, I think, relatively creative in this case. They sort of struck a deal directly with um, the Tajik government and said, we'll build this for you, but in return, you need to give us uh, some gold deposits sort of back for that. And and so the way that TBEA funded the project was they borrowed from Exim Bank and acted essentially as an intermediary, uh, but this is not... I think, a good picture of what's happening elsewhere. There certainly are other projects around, particularly when you have hydrocarbon reserves uh, where China will use that model. But that that model has been established for a long period of time and it's run into problems uh, in Venezuela, in uh, Turkmenistan now as well. It's once again very opaque, but it looks as though Turkmenistan, uh, if prices, well, when prices were low, we're going to really struggle uh, to pay back those loans. But if you look throughout most of... Asia, Southeast Asia, Pakistan as well, uh, the rest of Central Asia beside the project that I've just mentioned. By and large, uh, either you have a government to government loan, often concessional, but not always, or concessional being sort of 2 3%, that kind of area. And the repayments would be standard repayments where the government would have to pay back via cash um, into a bank account in China. And that's certainly been far more common in Central Asia, South Asia, Southeast Asia than the resource uh, play has been. I, I think that what Peter sort of alluded to uh, when when China sort of conceptualizes these things with its particular broad resources and now have comparatively sort of gone down the pecking order. Um, you mentioned uh, overcapacity moving off offshore standards. Uh, one that we haven't mentioned as well is also once again long term, but it's now been put all under the one, one Belt One Road umbrella. Is helping the poor regions on China's periphery develop and so when we talk about Southeast Asia or we talk about Central Asia as well uh, one of the big driving factors of that is to try and help uh, those border regions uh, develop economically and I think the southwestern part of China would probably be the focus of that that's just because we're that's where the largest number of poor people uh, people in poverty still are in China.
0: In some ways I don't sure if you would agree but there's echoes of the very earliest development plan under, under Jiang Zemin the um, the Go West strategy, which then morphed into Go Global, and now again morphs into to Belt and Road, is that still front and center of the, the government's mind to undo regional disparities inside China? Is, is this really a, a, an underpinning part of the Belt and Road? Do you think? Uh,
3: my belief is that it is. Um, of course, there are there are. We haven't even talked about the international geopolitical things, and we'll get to that in a moment. But in terms of, if you do to sort of divide the goals. Of um, the foreign pol- the the policy goals that China has, uh, that it would use Belt and Road for into kind of domestic, and international. If I sort of look at the domestic goals, which is largely uh, creating the right environment so that the economy of China can continue to uh, grow. Might not be the right term, but develop in a sort of uh, stable way, so it's more equal- More equitable. Uh, there is still some level of growth. It's more sustainable, so less debt as well. Um, Certainly, the things that I, I see as, as being front and center that are still the overcapacity issue, uh, helping impoverished parts of the cu- country develop. And, and you look at the main projects that have been discussed, we're sort of looking to the West and the Southwest, which is to help um, Xinjiang, although you could say that events have got a, got ahead and the security has become a, a bigger concern there. And then the other part is in Southwest China. And Xi Jinping has been very clear on poverty reduction, I think, there. And it would be surprising to me that the number one sort of foreign policy initiative that he uses, also has a domestic component, wouldn't target the number one or number two domestic development goal that he's sort of stated throughout his period of time. So I, I think that's certainly a fairly big part of it as well. I mean, I'm thinking about the security aspect and the foreign policy aspect of
0: it. Um, one thing we're seeing in various places, particularly um, in, in Sri Lanka, um, at the, the port there, which is has basically been handed over to uh, the Chinese company in a, to enable Sri Lanka to service an $8 billion debt. Other countries have made similar compromises. I'm, I'm thinking of um, Djibouti, Laos, Mongolia, and even in our immediate region, uh, there's a suggestion that countries such as Vanuatu and Tonga are vulnerable to a similar type of debt-trap diplomacy. Is that what's going on, or is there more to it than
3: that? Uh, there's certainly more to it than that. I think it's probably first a good idea just to sort of, we haven't touched on it yet, uh, sort of list what I think are the main foreign policy goals that this the Belt and Road might try and do. Now, Belt and Road isn't necessarily the only tool that uh, China is using in foreign policy, but I sort of when I conceptualise how Belt and Road is used for foreign policy, the goals that I see, to describe it more broadly, China is essentially trying to create a foreign policy environment that is sort of prosperous, stable, and more amenable to China's rise. And I think the first two of that speaks for itself, but the third part, more amenable to China's rise, sort of speaks to trying to reduce America's role in the region. The way that I see them achieving that isn't necessarily through driving countries into debt. And so I think the broad plan is really trying to, over time, align the worldviews of other, other nations in the region uh, by essentially aligning their economic views, uh, saying that uh, your development aligns with with China's development, Uh, one of the key key parts to the Belt and Road Initiative is sort of aligning economic development policy. One sort of further step from that is just aligning policy uh, more broadly. Uh, When it comes to the question of debt itself, there was a study by the Centre for Global Development out relatively recently, and they sort of looked at 69 of the countries. Um, Eight of those were sort of seen at high risk. And I think probably some of those were actually not as risky as they were made out because the loans were highly concessional. So that strikes to me that you're not seeing as many countries there as you would expect if it was all about debt diplomacy. Now, that raises the question, well, what about the cases where we do end up with significant levels of debt, like Sri Lanka, the loans need to be refinanced or nationalization or ownership by a state-owned enterprise needs to take place, what's sort of happening there? And I think we, we see a battle between geopolitical goals, trying to be seen to be investing in Belt and Road. As, as Peter has mentioned in some of his papers, if you're now part of a company looking to invest overseas, it's easier to get approval for Belt and Road uh, than, it was, than it was before. Uh, but at the same time, all the major financing organisations, whether they be Ch- uh, China Development Bank, Export-Import Bank, uh, Ex-Im Bank, China Exim Bank, or the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, they do want to to not have too many loans that are not going to be paid back. They don't want too many non-performing loans and they've said this frequently. And so we see this tension where a lot of the, the heads of banks are saying we need to worry about debt, uh, whereas at the same time they also are being encouraged to um, invest or to fund as many geopolitically positive projects as possible and there's a, there's a definite tension there. Um, so we're seeing this battle back and forth, but overall at the moment for the... Vast majority of uh, Belt and Road countries, we see that debt isn't that big a problem.
1: Uh, Peter, I want to ask you. It just seems from everything that you are saying that what you're outlining is actually kind of that China is using the Belt and Road to kind of construct a new global economic order driven by China, with China at its centre, with every other country sort of rotating in China's orbit. And actually, the more you talk about it, the more it sounds like a kind of almost like a political campaign that's also being exported, you know, where one banner is being used to unify all these different things. I mean, is that, a, is, would you agree with that reading?
2: I mean, either way, it is already there. Let's just take our own region as, as an example. China is already the largest trading partner pretty much of every single country in the region, including Australia and all the country, you name it, Japan, Korea. So China, in a way, already has that kind of a trade economic primacy in the region, more so than the United States. But also, you know, how did you even strengthen that further? Because if we talk about China's influence the power that comes foremost to everyone's mind is china's economic influence is because china is the largest trading partner is also the largest consumer of natural resource the largest export of tourism students that is applicable to a lot of country not just to australia so in a way through belton road if you actually have a high-speed railways linking the country if you set up a, Uh, China's companies, the industry, industrial processing zones in a particular place. If all those countries are even more physically integrated to China than now, it just means it's really strengthening China's economic influence in the region. So I just think a lot of this just translated into greater economic leverage for China. And a lot of it's already happening naturally, uh, just because China... World's well, second largest economy, there's a 10 trillion dollar economy. If you're in the immediate region, the pooling power is already there, and it's kind of in the way, no escape, unless you don't want the trade. But with the Belt and Road, it just means you are even more pulled into that kind of orbit, and uh, you know, even more physically. Imagine if you are a country, let's say. Pakistan is actually a kind of interesting example because China has a very strong military, political um, security ties with Pakistan. The kind of always the missing link between the two countries is actually the economic link. So now you're talking about investing $40 billion and et cetera into Pakistan, into a country that is really lagging behind India in terms of economic performance. It just means in the future, China, uh, Pakistan will be even more kind of a wedded to that relationship with China because now you added an extra economic component to the already kind of a fairly strong relationship. What about if you're a small state in Southeast Asia? Now you're having the Chinese railway literally passing through your territory. That means more tourists come into the country. It means more natural resource will be exploited along the, 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 the railway. You know, there will be more shoes factories, garment factory. It just means like your economic activity and life will be more intertwined with China. And it's just hard, if you think about to unwind that relationship.
1: There's so many different things that are being accomplished by this. And it's very easy to see it from China's side. But I'm wondering from the side of the other countries involved, for example, the countries that you've looked at, By and large, are they, you know, are these Belt and Road projects actually really good for smaller countries, especially if they're getting concessional loan rates and all this infrastructure being built for them? Um, You know, I know it's hard to generalize, but often we only hear about the projects that are going wrong. I'm just wondering, for these smaller countries, in your experience, you know, how, how would, how do you think they tend to be seen? These projects.
3: Mm, that's a good question. Uh, one thing that we can sort of say is that there is a lot of variation across uh, the region. In last year, there was China had sort of 120 billion dollars worth of outward foreign direct investment. Only 14 billion of that went to Belt and Road countries. The 69 Belt and Road countries. That's less than 500 billion. Much less than 500 billion per country. And some of those countries are countries like Indonesia, which are a $1.2 trillion economy. That's a lot of numbers, but it's not a lot of investment, really. If you're in a small country, though, a few hundred million dollars can be a lot. In Tajikistan, for example, China's invested somewhere sort of like six, seven, eight hundred million dollars over the past 10 years. And it's only a seven billion dollar economy. So that has had some impact in a country where there's very little foreign direct investment. As to the view of different countries, I think. With some exceptions, foreign governments are at least initially very open to receiving Chinese investment because if you're in a developing country, which is most of the countries in Asia, uh, you're very much looking for, for ways to help develop your economy. And if you're struggling to attract foreign direct investment and China is potentially willing to offer that, even though up until this point it hasn't been a particularly large amount, that is very, very, very attractive. And I was reading um, this morning some commentary via governors of banks in Pakistan, and they said, this is very attractive, we'd be crazy not to take it. They want to have, ideally, access to other funds. And one thing that Belt and Road has done is it's meant that Japan, uh, India to a lesser extent, and even a little bit the US, uh, have sort of increased their economic engagement in the region, and they're offering more money particularly in the in the form of concessional loans and so there's now actually more choice for a lot of the countries than there were five six seven years ago Uh, not just because of China but because of a whole range of countries so for them it's actually been a really really good time Um, if you're in Southeast Asia you go to Vietnam for example and um, in Hanoi and Ho Chi Minh City I can't remember which one which Japan is building the metro in one, in one major city, and China is building the metro in the other major city. Another example is Japan built the air, airport in Hanoi, I think, and the road to the airport was funded by the Japanese. And so there's actually more availability of funds than there ever were before. But governments are still, by and large, willing to take this money, with some exceptions. You mentioned that when it goes too far and they do get themselves into too much debt, like in Sri Lanka... There is pushback, and of course there's pushback in Malaysia as well at the same time, and this is a lot of the time driven from bottom up. For all the, the welcome um, that a lot of governments have of this money, uh, the people are certainly far more uh, sceptical about about China's economic engagement. If I can push you on that, uh, sorry, not,
0: not, not really push you on that, but to kind of expand on that, in terms of the, the sort of the long-term benefits um, that the Belt and Road might offer, and something that's certainly there in the rhetoric of a lot of my favourite Belt and Road rap songs, is the idea that if you are going to become part of China's production chain, there should be some skills transfer and knowledge transfer along with it. What's been your experience of that um, in the field? Do you see much evidence of Chinese companies buying
3: into that? That's a great question. I think the general narrative is at the moment, certainly if you read about Southeast Asia, that a lot of the concessional loan projects are being built by Chinese companies, mainly with Chinese labor. Uh, I've visited quite a few sites in Central Asia, and one of the big pieces of pushback that's been in all Central Asian countries uh, is that they feel there's been too many Chinese workers on sites. And Chinese companies, at least at a rhetorical level, have acknowledged that. Um, And most of them actively say, we're now trying to recruit more locals. And most of the countries uh, in the region do have uh, sort of minimum amounts of hiring. So a minimum hiring amount for locals, you need to have like 60 or 70 or 80% local hires. And there's patchy enforcement, certainly more enforcement of that than there was, say, a few years ago. So there, at that level, there certainly is some uh, degree of skills transfer that wasn't there five, six, seven years ago. Investments, in my experience, tend to have more locals because they're there for a longer period of time and they need to operate for many years back to back to back and need community support. When you're talking about the construction of the road, it's usually only for a short period of time, three, four years, and the time taken to train engineers and things like that is quite long. And so it's not as commonplace uh, as it is with investments. And so the final word that I'd say on this, that there is a case now, certainly in Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan, of Chinese companies sending locals to China to have three, four months worth of training, often to operate machinery. So it's machinery that requires training, but you don't need to be, for example, a fully trained electrician, and they go and get those three or four months of training. And certainly some of those people are now back in Tajikistan working um, in those projects uh, at this point in time, but it certainly is not uniform across the board.
1: When we're talking about pushback, one country where we're suddenly seeing a lot of talk about Belt and Road is Malaysia. It appears to be having a bit of a wobble, so the new old Prime Minister, Mahathir, has criticised the previous administration for selling out to China and said he's worried about the the influx of workers, the over reliance on Chinese materials, the limited opportunities for locals. I mean, Malaysia is important because it was seen as a bit of a poster child for One Belt One Road. I mean, do you think that Peter that this is? Um, a blip in the road or are, is that kind of pushback coming from a race you know, country that has been seen as quite important, is that likely to have an impact on China's ambitions?
2: Not being a Malaysian um, politics expert, I just think one of the big risks really from Beijing's perspective you look at is the geopolitical change. With the change of a government, we have seen quite a lot, perhaps not so relevant. If you look at the case of the Philippines, its stance on uh, its China policy really changed quite dramatically. Now we're probably seeing on the cusp of seeing a similar, not similar, but a kind of a change of heart in Malaysia so one of the things the Chinese have to deal with is really around the governments that uh, if they change the government, in the case of Sri Lanka if I remember correctly as well there was also a change of government a couple of years ago, like a pro-Beijing Prime Minister was voted out, so I just think there's something um, they have to deal with uh, that with which the change of government it might come uh, you know, with it, a, a kind of a a change in terms of uh, their stance on the Chinese investment and how cooperative they want to be. One comes to Belt and Road, but I, I think in the China's case with Malaysia, they were uh, really close to the previous government. I understand the Chinese government even funded. Um, some of the money in relation to the YM1MB one um, scandal. So I think they, they perhaps over-invested in the previous government too exposed to it. So now they are really facing the kind of unsinkable that, that there's a, a change in government in the, you know, there's a very rare event in Malaysia, right? <laughs> <laughs>
0: I mean Malaysia is a fascinating example because this sort of highlights the domestic dangers that they face and and I suspect this is going to be, I'm not sure what your view is, but this could be a real boon to lawyers in Singapore and Hong Kong. Um, There there could be an immense upsurge. In those sort of problems, but there's also, I guess, a risk on the on the domestic side, which um, I think both of you have alluded to, that sometimes the delays in these belt and road projects come from the Chinese side, in that banks are unwilling to stump up the funding for projects they don't think uh, add up, be they in Bangladesh or in Indonesia. So, in the longer run, how do you think China's looming financial crisis? might affect the prospects of one built one room. Um,
2: I just think um, that probably have to go back a little bit to to Dirk, what Dirk mentioned is actually quite important, that tension Really betraying. Um, if they're important geopolitical projects, you want to get it done, of course. But at the same time, I just think also the Chinese bankers and the financiers are going to be a, going to play a quite inf- influential. Probably, I would even say, kind of almost a determining role because they are the one who are going to cough up all the cash to finance these projects. If you look at all a lot of official statements, including from the central bank, um, I think last year. I think it was last year, the deputy central bank governor um, of the PBOC, People's Bank of China, um, and uh, he was the man who was in charge of China's foreign reserve, actually made it quite explicit. That um, a lot of commercial outcomes should determine uh, your your overseas investment projects, and uh, don't use Belton Road um, as an excuse if you actually fail to do your due diligence, and you'll be held responsible for the investment decision. And you also listen to um, all the 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 chiefs of the Chinese big banks, you know, of course on one hand they all pledge their support for Belt and Road, you know, talking about I think it was a Bank of China or one of the big four Chinese commercial bank actually they were talking about they're looking at some staggering eight hundred projects worth you know hundreds of billions of dollars, but in terms of the one they actually are going to fund is actually uh, not that many, and also if you even talk about more commercially orientated. Um, the Chinese financial institutions, etc. Uh, their preference is probably actually to invest in Canada and Australia. So if they can get away with not investing in Belt and Road projects, they will be, probably be quite happy as well, because that's why <clears throat> this actually goes back, this whole thing about debt trap again. Um, even though the Chinese bankers are probably... Uh, politically motivated they have to do political landings but they are also bankers um, so they have to get their money back so unless there's something very important they want to trap someone in the debt um, but most of the time it's banking one. they actually like to get their money back and also there's also a very important domestic context to it Let's not forget China's famous $4 trillion stimulus package in the immediate aftermath of the, the global financial crisis. That was the headline figure, but also the Chinese banks add another $10 trillion to it. So now they have uh, many of the banks like... a. Um, and you know pretty damaged the balance sheets, and they they have a lot of white elephants project to deal with, also project with access capacities in China. So one of China's most formidable business magazine Taishing, actually one of the striking headline is you know do we want to have a repeat of a four trillion dollar stimulus package abroad? So last time actually if it happened in China's kind of okay because they actually create some jobs and GDP. But when you splash them outside of China, what do you really get out of it? Probably not much. So I just think it's actually intense debate um, in China itself uh, with the central banks officials, the financiers, the financial regulators. Of course, they support a Belt and Road. But it really come back to the question, what, what projects we can actually support, which projects we can't support. And there's always a geopolitical and a commercial and priorities. Um, I guess if the project is really important, it will be funded regardless. But, um, uh, but I think it's a lot of the time also bankers probably have a quite important say in what projects they can actually finance and what they can't.
1: I've been just really um, taken in all kinds of ways by the massive propaganda campaign that has been exported and has been carried out overseas really sort of... Uh, exhorting the Belt and Road Initiative, you know, all this kind of publicity uh, surrounding Belt and Road projects. And now we're beginning to hear some kind of pushback from countries, complaints about debt-trap diplomacy, grumblings about Chinese neo-colonialism. How concerned do you think Beijing is about this?
2: Well, I don't know how concerned they are, but I'm just saying, if you think about it, I mean... Like many of China's external propaganda campaign, um, I mean, this one is not, I think, terribly effective. If you think about, you know we're still confused about the actual slogan, Belton Road Initiative, or Obo, or One Belt and Road. It's, you know, from the beginning, if you think about the key slogan, it's taken years even for that to be settled. Yeah, it's just very hard, you know, to sell that to, to people, to explain the benefits and et cetera. And also some of the languages, I mean, especially... Is going overboard like the sheer destiny things like that. I don't know whether it sounds any better than in Chinese, but I just think if you start to use that type of language, it seems to be quite abstract, and uh, you're probably not going to get a lot of a buying from the people, especially if anyone's paying attention to ball, especially at a more popular level. So the pushback, I think the the biggest pushback as far as I can see, is really around country start to 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 really warn people around this debt burden. So can you actually afford it? Um, Does that trap you in in some kind of a bondage to Beijing? I think as far as I can tell, this is kind of a a quite um, effective pushback in a way. If you talk about Obo, certainly at uh, the media level or uh, in terms of policy makers, that is certainly becoming a lot more dominant narrative that um, the, the, the Chinese bank loans trap you in the debt and you can't afford to pay back and they will convert their loan into equity and you know, all this 99 years leasehold and uh, you know, even using, I think, Hong Kong as a comparison. I just think in terms of a pushback, it is actually a quite um, powerful counter-narrative. After the global financial crisis, a lot of a country uh, in the US and also in the European country, one of the things that you can actually scare the voter is actually debt.
1: Moving forward, how do you see it playing out? Is One Belt, One Road too big to fail, or is there no possibility of failure, given the fact that it is this kind of vast, sprawling unspecified, unarticulated thing. So if we don't really even know how it is, we can't really judge whether it's worked or not.
3: That's certainly true. It's it's hard to, it is comp- very, very vague as to what it is. So if you try and say, oh, did Belt and Road succeed? Um, I think in five years time, there'll still be Belt and Road projects. Uh, things will still be going on. I think maybe in terms of an external analyst trying to understand whether Belt and Road succeeded uh, is to look at the sort of policy goals that uh, China has now, which Belt and Road will be sort of part of trying to achieve. Um, so I think if you look in five years' time and you say that uh, Asia's economy is more centralised around China, I think that that you could say that that's uh, an accept, acceptable sort of success. Um, if... Um, countries are still willing to take Chinese money in five years and I think they will be and to add to what you said to what Peter said about debt I think corruption is another one and local skills transfer even though I said companies are aware of it I think that the message hasn't got to the general public yet Uh, so that's certainly um, something to consider as well Uh, with regards to the domestic economy uh, if we see for example uh, standards uh, Chinese standards being adopted sort of Domestic Chinese standards being adopted more globally would be another way that you could sort of measure that success. It's hard to um, understand. It's sort of hard to measure that. If you see a reduction in the US role in Asia, I think you could say that that, that's a success as well. But if those sort of four things were to happen, you could say that it was a success. I think it will be trumpeted as a a success either way. I don't think it's going to matter what happened. It'll, It'll be sold as a success either way. And... There is a potential, I think, moving forward where the geopolitical pressure now currently being applied by Xi Jinping and others could just ease off a little bit if they see pushback being too strong from some of the recipient states. And I think that at that case, that 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 is one possibility looking forward.
2: Yeah, I mean, I agree mostly with Dirk. And also, because of Belt and Road, there will be, I imagine, in five years' time, there will be a lot of projects. I'm sure there will be a lot of failures. And I'm sure there'll be some successes. And uh, I guess for the detractors of the project, they can always point to the failures. And uh, for the people who think the projects are in success, I mean, hopefully in a couple of years' time there will be some good examples for them to point to. Um, I just think either way, um, I think at least domestically in China will be sold as a great success. I think in the time, my bet would be in Pakistan, a lot of projects will be up and running in terms of roads, power stations, and etc. So you can you can point out some some examples of success that is actually kind of making a difference in a country that is probably in desperate need of electricities and the power generations and et cetera. Uh, one of the things I find it quite interesting, it's it's kind of all uh, tied together a little bit with the Made in China 2025. If you think about it, one of the greatest success of American systems is actually to be able to attract people to study there and disseminate American educations and et cetera, the technical know-how. But I think it's also happening in China as a part and a package of the Belt and Road is China is going to increase the number of scholarships they give out to Belt and Road country. Um, I think from the current, um, I think 40% of 50,000 scholarship a year to about 60%, and also potentially increase the number of scholarship. What you are you seeing at the moment? Let's say China build a railway projects in Kenya. So they would actually go out, actively identify very promising Kenyan students from high school actually send them to Beijing uh, to do a two years or four years engineering degree railway engineering degrees so that's not just Kenya but also Thailand they, they pick a promising student and sponsored by actually a railway company or engineering company send them to study China and also in the case that's say other country like a Pakistan's and etc they would have a, you know probably a, a promising a mid-level junior official would go to Beijing University actually do a master's degree in development of finance. He probably would otherwise have gone to LSE, London School of Economics, but in this case, he probably would have picked uh, Beijing University. So you are saying that China recognized there is a problem that um, it's widely seen as they just use the, the Chinese labour battalions to build the roads and leave. Now it's actually it's in China's interest actually to invest in promising future engineers, technicians, decision makers, bureaucrats to build a constituent um, in the future to support, you know, when it comes to procurement and contract, industrial policy, whether to adopt, let's say, you know, China's railway engineering standard, not just for railway, but let's say nuclear reactor, should you choose to build a nuclear reactor, because that's one other area China's and also telecommunication, 5G standard, which will be a very hot topic. If you're in a country, you're going to decide which are you going to use the European standard or you're going to use the Huawei or ZTE standard. But if you have officials from uh, Ministry of Telecommunication or Post um, training China, um, how are you going to make the decision? Is that a way to influence um, in the future. I just think it's kind of a another very interesting set of a battle going on. If you talk about self-power, that's kind of a, how China wants to project the self-power is through getting people to come to study in China not what we you know traditionally before just our Chinese language training, a bit of an opera, pinking opera, a bit of a you know side saying of a forbidden city, but now we're getting serious. We're talking about people actually enrolled at a Chinese university, you do your four years degree. Um, you're trained, you become a Chinese trained engineer, essentially. Then you go back to your home country and, uh, you know, years down the track, you'll be in a position of influence and power. And, uh, and, you know, I just think that's a much longer term power projection project or initiative or however you want to call it. And it's also kind of addressed the perception that um, uh, the Chinese don't train locals. Um, One example of skills
0: transfer that has been incredibly successful is the ability to write a catchy Belt and Road song. (laughs) Now our very own DJ, Louisa Lim, will be curating three Belt and Road songs from different countries and the first person to visit our Facebook page and guess the three countries will win some Little Red podcast merchandise of their choice.
1: Do we need to put a trigger warning before this song?
0: (laughs) Certainly for your children, yes. (laughs) Thanks to our guests Peter Sy and Dirk van der Klee and to my co-host Louisa Lim. I'm Graham Smith and you've been listening to The Little Red Podcast, bringing you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. Find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll also find show notes on Facebook to learn more about Peter and Dirk's research on the Belt and Road, and perhaps a few more rap songs. This episode was edited by Andy Hazel with background research by Julia Birkin. Our theme music is by Susie Wilkins and our cartoons and gifts are courtesy of Seb Danta. Bye for now.